today we have a special episode to show you guys. We have some interviews from a conference that Ava went to of young researchers in the field. And Ava, do you want to tell us a little bit about this conference that you went to? Yeah, so, I mean, you are going to hear more about it when we put in all the recordings uh, I did in the, the conference. But this was uh, the first time going to this European conference on clinical microbiology. And of course, it wasn't just about antibiotic-resistant antibiotics, but it's a big part of the clinical microbiology and the infectious diseases, which was the topic. And I just have to say that uh, it was big. Yeah. <laughs> you will hear the numbers. Uh, it was over four huge. days. It was huge. It was because a lot that of understatement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, it was very interesting. It was challenging, of course, to decide what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted mm -hmm. to learn and what type of things I was more interested uh, than others because there were uh, 10 parallel sessions, 10 oral sessions at the same time. Wow. So every time there were 10 different topics or things to choose from. And so every morning we had to like be, okay, what's the program? What it is that I'm more interested about? What things I might be okay with uh, missing? Yeah. Um, have a game plan every day. <laughs> yeah. And also at the same time, of course, it was the poster sessions, which I wanted to go to. And it was the main part for, for, the, mm -hmm. for the AMR studio. And then also there was a big hall with a lot of companies that work in drug, in diagnostics, in everything related with the patient. So it was a little bit of a... Um, Overwhelming? Um, yeah, I would say. I think <laughs> over the four days, two of them, I didn't even have lunch because there was like basically no time. Oh, wow. And I was also very shocked that the sessions started at 7.30 in the morning. So yeah, they really took advantage of those four days. Right. <laughs> yeah, Maximize. I mean, I, I guess they had to. For me, it was also um, super amazing to see how they organized such a big thing, you know. Mm -hmm. It was in, in a big um, congress place in Amsterdam and it was just it, overall it was very well organized I, I have to say and I had a lot of fun I learned a lot I also was able to meet some friends and some colleagues that I haven't seen in a long time so mm -hmm. I had a really good time and uh, my idea is that uh, I, were, I was going to go out uh, in the poster sessions and try to find young researchers give them a voice so they could also train to present their projects quickly concise and for the general public yeah. and the most challenging part was to find find uh, themes that could be interesting for you at home to listen to, you know, because there were a lot of projects presented which are relevant, they're important for science, important to understand, for example, the spread of diseases. But, you know, presenting a project that is looking at how this bug moves around these hospitals in this region might not be the most interesting part for you mm -hmm. to listen to. So my idea is to pick topics that were relevant to our theme but that also at home you could say, oh, maybe this I have heard before or this could be interesting. So I, I really hope that uh, you find uh, find it exciting as much as I did when I was there. It was really great to meet these people. And also I wanted to give the voice to people from different parts. So we have somebody from Australia. We have somebody from the US. We have somebody from Spain, somebody from the Nordics. So it's a little bit... Uh, the diverse the group. Yeah, diverse group. Yeah. Uh, um, so it's very nice. Yeah. I really love to hear these interviews, so I hope our audience gets to hear them as well and loves them as much as I did. <laughs> enjoy. Right. Yeah, enjoy. Thank you. Hi, AMR Studio listeners. So I'm here at ECMI 2019, the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. It's the 29th edition of this conference, and this year is taking place in Amsterdam. 
Netherlands and I'm here not only as uh, Uppsala Antibiotic Center coordinator looking around what is on the forefront of clinical microbiology research but we decided that it would be actually quite cool to do a special episode doing fast interviews to young researchers that are here at the poster session presenting their work. So actually when I came here I realized that this is not going to be such an easy work because actually there are a whooping amount of 2,869 posters being presented over four days. Today is the first day, it's Saturday 13th of April, and I'm here going around the poster hall, which is humongous, trying to see what things are interesting, what things could potentially be interesting for you to know about, and see if I can find somebody that actually wants to talk to me. So let's see how it goes. So uh, we hear our first interviewee of the day. Uh, his name is Steven Taylor and he's coming from Adelaide. He's actually working on uh, cystic fibrosis patients related with the gut microbiome and the possible potential for antibiotic resistant development. And he's going to tell us what he's working with and what are the main and most important results. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit what you're doing? Sure. So, um, yeah, as I said, I'm Stephen. I'm down in Australia at the um, South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. So this poster is about cystic fibrosis, but it's more like broadly in terms of patients who receive high burdens of antibiotics and how um, that can select for resistance even within a person and how that's something we can consider. So we do kind of uh, microbiome, like sequencing-based analysis. So we're trying to come at resistance in a slightly different angle to try and see if we can capture more widely what kind of resistance is emerging before it emerges and also um, what are the, the targeted or at-risk populations and what I'm presenting here in this poster is particularly related to cystic fibrosis. Why are cystic fibrosis patients a good uh, patient group to study this? Um, so Pretty much these patients, they've got a genetic mutation that re um, results in chronic lung diseases and they pretty much receive some of the highest antibiotic burdens of like anyone on earth. So lifelong they're on continuous antibiotics but also high doses of intravenous antibiotics for pulmonary exacerbation. So they're just, um, they're, and they also receive a whole heap of different types of antibiotics. So it can be tobramycin like broad acting, narrow spectrum. Um, so that's why they were particularly chosen. Um, also, so they're a disease where it's primarily a respiratory tract infection um, or chronic lung disease, whereas it's their gut or the off-target effects of the gut that we're interested in because it's often not considered in respiratory medicine. Yeah, this is something that actually took my attention when I was going around and trying to see what could be interesting to, to look a little bit more further into because in principle, why would anything that is taken for a lung disease would actually affect the gut and would actually play a role in antibacterial resistance? Yeah, so that's, um, that's sort of what our question was and it's pretty much so they receive antibiotics through IV, through oral and also uh, inhaled tobramycin. Uh, and it's all to target their chronic lung disease, but of course the gut microbiome is really complex and diverse uh, microbial community and the same selective pressures that the antibiotics are having in their lungs is also happening in their gut. So we wanted to see what were the effects um, of all this antibiotic exposure on the gut and because it's such a complex community in the gut, it's much more amenable to selection for resistance because it's got a greater pool of genes that could potentially relate to resistance or be selected for resistance and also transmit horizontally and 
kind of this um, you're staring down the barrel of one gun and there's this big kind of gun of the gut to the other side that you're not not really considering so that's that's essentially what I looked at and did you find a correlation that cystic fibrosis patients have a higher number of resistant genes in their gut microbiome versus healthy patients yeah we found like as you would imagine with like lifelong antibiotics they've just got a gut Firstly, their gut microbiome composition is wildly different from healthy controls. And secondly, the pool of antibiotic resistance that they have is hugely different. So I have in the poster that it's the actual number of antibiotic resistance genes is really, really different, but also the type of antibiotic resistance genes is really different. And also the fact that the resistance genes that are different in these patients are also the scary ones that can actually transmit horizontally between organisms so it could be in a commensal organism and then it just transmits to a pathogen and then suddenly you've got a, a antibiotic resistant pathogen because this is another part of your study presented in your poster that you also looked at the potential for this to actually be transferred to also pathogens what are your results about that yeah so it wasn't a it's, it's going to be replicated it was kind of a i'm a I do a lot of computer-based analysis and like DNA extraction and I gave my little hand at some microbiology and tried to do a cold culture experiment where essentially, so the main pathogen in uh, cystic fibrosis that people are worried about is pseudomonas in the lungs and when that becomes drug resistant you get an increased rates of death, more difficult to treat. So I wanted to see whether anything from the gut could transmit resistance to pseudomonas because that's a clinically relevant pathogen. So yeah, I got some isolates from the gut that were tobramycin resistance and grew it with pseudomonas. And essentially what I ended up with was a resistant pseudomonas. So nearly this scary like Frankenstein thing where you co-culture them together and you get this resistant pseudomonas out of it. So it's a very kind of in vitro way of showing that they, you can get this transmission of resistance. Yeah, that the potential is there. It's a little bit of thought experiment because what are re like the real life chances that a gut microbe will actually maybe encounter a commensal pseudomonas or a pathogenic pseudomonas? Yeah, so it's hard to kind of comment on that because, yeah, the gut is distant from the lungs, but within the one patient, they're receiving all this antibiotics. It might be a one in a billion event, but if these patients, you got um, thousands and thousands of CF patients and lifelong on these antibiotics, eventually it's going to become a real issue that even within their own person, they can select for their own resistance. So it's not so much a, a worldwide phenomenon. It could be within the one patient, they select for their own antibiotic resistant pseudomonas, which is a scary thought. You can't even be on a desert island and escape resistant bugs. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. Well, this was really good, really nice to look at your poster. And uh, I really thank you for your time and for talking to us. And I hope that our listeners also can see like that this could be a potential problem the same as you, as you think. No worries. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. So here we are at ECMI, second day, and today we actually have a two full hours of poster sessions. As you can imagine, with so many posters here, the organization is kind of divided into different sessions, even though the posters are all at the same time. And today there are a lot of posters about mycobacteria and tuberculosis, also a lot of posters about viral hepatitis and HIV. And then later in the afternoon, from 1.30 to 2.30, there's going to be the poster session containing a lot about resistance. Resistance to polymyxins, resistance to carbapenems, resistance to cephalosporins. So a lot of heavy AMR research going on. I'm going to see if I can get somebody working on TV to talk to us now. And then later I'm going to go check some of the 
more science resistance uh, research. So I hope we find somebody that uh, is willing to be part of us. Hi again. So here we are with Hanne Brecke from University of Oslo, and she's going to tell us what she's working on with uh, Mycobacterium abscessus, which is a little bit different than Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is probably what you have heard before. So she's going to tell us a little bit what she's doing. Hi, Hanne. Can you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us what you're working on? Yep. So my name is Hannah, and I'm both the microbiologist and infectious diseases specialist. And uh, I find the non-tuberculosis mycobacterium very interesting because mycobacterium tuberculosis is very well known and everybody has an idea about it. But mycobacterium abscessus is actually the second most common non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. The most common is mycobacterium avium intracellulare. And abscessus is a very resistant type of mycobacterium. Mostly it affects patients with uh, immunosuppression, with cystic fibrosis, and it can technically lead to them needing two or three different antibiotics for two or three years to be eradicated or if they're eradicated at all. What type of infections does this mycobacteria yeah. give? Yeah, so mostly they give uh, lung infections, but they can also lead to skin or soft tissue infections. They've been seen very much in cystic fibrosis patients with different lung infections where they have a rapidly decreasing lung function. Or they can be seen in kids playing in different waddling pools, swimming pools, and then they get skin infections from the mycobacterium abscesses. So what we've done is try to do different methods to differentiate them further and have an easier way of getting the different subspecies. Because when you look at mycobacterium abscesses, there are three different subspecies. There's the mycobacterium abscesses, subspecies abscesses, and then there's the uh, subspecies Boletti and subspecies Massilienza. And it's important to know exactly what subspecies is for treatment or what's the reason for that? Yes, Mycobacterium abscessus subspecies abscessus is the most resistant one, while the Massilienza is a lot less resistant and the Boletti is resistant, but it's very rarely seen. And there's also been some cases where you think that it can affect person to person, not directly, but you know, person to the surface, to the person. And then if you're immunosuppressed or if you're sick from something else, you can actually get quite sick from this and it can spread in hospital environments and hospital diseases. So that's what we've done looking at it. And we also done um, typing and we looked at the different resistance genes that we have found in Norwegian strains and we looked at the different types of resistance they have. And we found that in Norway, they're fairly sensitive. We only found four very resistant ones. But then again, we know that in Norway, we hardly use any macrolides at all. And we think that this is an inducible resistance. So if we started to use clarithromycin or the macrolides, that would increase resistance. So this is just the starting point. We've done whole genome sequencing on all of them, which is basically mapping the entire genome of the different strains. And we've seen that they have so many different genes and they are aquaporins, they have different types of resistant genes in them. So this is the beginning and there's coming a lot more, but it's very interesting and very funny to work with because this is one of the most resistant types of um, microbes there is. Mycobacterium tuberculosis and abscesses. 
Okay, so then your goal is basically to understand the genetic background of these strains, so it's going to help out with choosing treatments down the line. Yes, so it's going to help out choosing more specific treatments, so you won't start using the wrong treatment for the wrong patient because you know already that they're resistant, so you can start with the most effective treatment from the beginning and hopefully you can reduce the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics and reduce the whole exposure. So after this, what are your next steps? What are you doing after? We have done whole genome sequencing, so now we're going to go back and we're going to look further at all the results we have and we're going to write up different articles on it. So there's quite a big of group working with it, um, so that's what we're planning to do further. So maybe even if in Norway you didn't find that so many re- strains are resistant, your results could be applied to other parts of the world where maybe macrolides are more used? Absolutely. I think it could be used in different parts of the world. And I also think that quite a lot of people could use different typings to check it further and just see the evolution of that also. That's great. Thank you so much for telling us about your work and I hope you have a really good meeting and a, a lot of different good discussions about your work. Thank you very much, you too. Hi, we're here with Gemma Labrador Herrera from Sevilla, Spain, and she's gonna explain to us what she's working with uh, Acinetobacter baumani, which is one of the most uh, dangerous pathogens right now. Uh, can you introduce yourself and tell our audience what is it that you're working on right now? Yeah, hello to everybody. I'm Gemma Labrador from Spain. I'm a PhD student in the Infectious Diseases Group of the Institute of Biomedicine of Seville. And now I'm in the ECMI presenting my poster. How um, how do you like ECMI so far? <laughs> yeah, I really like it. It's, I've been here for three years. So yeah, I really like it. I think it's the best Congress. It's big, very big. (laughs) So, so much. (laughs) Can you tell our audience uh, what is it that you're looking into for Acinetobacter baumani and uh, possible ways of treating Acinetobacter? So, yeah, the main objective of this project is that, as all of you know, this is a multidrug resistance. So the main uh, antibiotics that there is right now, they have no function in this Acinetobacter because of its resistance. So we are looking for new targets in order to perform new inhibitors for these targets. So now I am describing one of these genes that I think it's <laughs> implicated in the pathogenesis of this uh, pathogen. So what gene is it and what is it doing? Why is it related to the pathogenicity of Acinetobacter? So yeah, this gene is, well, we are looking because it was described as a resistant gene before, but now we are looking for a virulence role of this gene in this pathogen. And now we are describing in this study that it is implicated in the biofilm formation and also in the others and invasion to lung epithelial cells in vitro. And now we are performing also the in vivo studies. And acetobacter is important because it can actually form biofilms, which are a little bit more, even more difficult to treat type of infections. Even if you are already resistant, but if you're in biofilm, it will be even more difficult to treat it, right? Yeah, that's true. You cannot, all the antibiotic or the main antibiotic cannot go into the pathogen. So that's why, yeah, it's more difficult if they form biofilm, yeah. And uh, you're looking now, this is in vitro data, and you're going to move into in vivo, but what, what have you found about this target and about this gene and the possibilities of using it as a target in vitro? Yeah, in vitro, as I said before, 
in this uh, part of the study is implicated only in bioinformation and other and invasion. We performed the in vivo in a 96 uh, cell, you know, plate. And then with the adherence and invasion, we use cell culture with A549. So we saw that if the strain have uh, the caro genes, that is the name of the genes, they can adhere and invade more the cells than the strain that have no, the knockout uh, strain that have no this gene. Yeah. So the idea is that uh, a possible novel therapy will inhibit the expression of this gene, for example, or how would it go about? Yeah, that's, well, in our group, uh, we develop some inhibitor, for example, for OMPA, that it's another important pathogenic gene. And in this case, it's more or less the same. So we are looking for an inhibitor, yeah, to inhibit the expression of these genes, so they cannot other or invade the lung epithelial cells, yeah. Cool. So now you're at the stage where you saw it in the plates and you want to see now if it will work on an animal model, I guess, as the next step? Yeah, we are experts in animal models in our group. So now I'm performing pneumonia models and also sepsis models in order to know if they have more virulence, if they have these genes or not. And then see if you can avoid that they would actually latch on to the animal okay thank you so much it was really interesting to learn what you're doing and i hope you have a really good uh, rest of like two days we have left and a lot of people are come here to to learn what you're doing thank you so much thank you so much hi again so now we're gonna interview uh here anais which is working in a topic that is very relevant to our podcast which is antimicrobial resistance uh, awareness um, and with the public. So can you please introduce yourself, where you're working and what are you working with? Uh, so I'm Anaïs, nice to meet you. I'm working in Nancy in the northeast of France and I'm working uh, with a group of antibiotic stewardship program and uh, we are working on um, different participants who, who are involved in the antibiotic uh, stewardship. So for this study, I was work, uh, working on um, the general participant uh, perceptions of antibiotic resistance. So we have been meeting with retired people and parents of young children. And we asked them what are the perceptions of antibiotic resistance, how do uh, they use antibiotics, and if they need an awareness campaign, what kind of information was important for them. Okay, and um, so what you do, do you uh, have like interviews with these people that are part of the, of the hospital because they're going to get antibiotics? And what do, you look, what do you ask them to understand how do they see antibiotic resistance? Uh, actually, this study is more on community. So about uh, like general public uh, getting to the general practitioner to get antibiotics if they are sick. And yes, we interviewed them. Um, we actually have been contacting some associations or going to school to meet some parents or other people and ask them a few questions on antibiotics. We did like a group discussions of five to six participants. And then uh, we made the transcript of the, of the interview and uh, analyzed what they said. Okay, and what are your main results? What are the conclusions of your study? Uh, the conclusions are there is um, an important uh, societal pressure to get back to work quickly and uh, antibiotics is uh, viewed 
have the quickest and immediate solutions to get back to work. Even if people know they have a viral infection, they need antibiotics because it's quick and easy. Okay, so how much they would actually be pulled away from work because the infection is, is a driver to actually want antibiotics and to pressure the general practitioner to give them antibiotics? Yes, it's actually... Um, they need to go back to work because being, um, being in sickness leave is badly perceived. For the participants, it's really uh, the participants' perceptions. So yes, yeah, they need to go back so they go to, to their uh, doctors and say, I'm really sick, I really need some antibiotics. And related to this, uh, did you look into how much do they know about antibiotic resistance and that if they misuse or we as a group misuse antibiotics and are used when they are not needed that this could increase antibiotic resistance? Did they have any pre-knowledge of that? They don't have really a lot of knowledge on antibiotic resistance. We ask them about um, if they knew it and most of them say no, we don't know. Actually when we asked them to explain to us what is antibiotic resistance. They were kind of confused. Is it my body who is resistant or the bacteria who are resistant? They not really knowledge on that. But they have good knowledge on antibiotics and on bacteria. Even if they don't really need a lot, they actually knew when uh, they get prescribed, they remember the kind of antibiotics they have been used. And in your opinion, what could we do or what is it needed for them to perhaps be more aware and, or have more knowledge about the antibiotic resistance problem in itself? For me, in my opinion, we have to work on the knowledge and the outcomes of antibiotic resistance because they don't know at all. And if you don't know what are the consequences, you don't have the motivations to stop using or to stop uh, being doing automedication. So I think that's one thing important. And the other is workplace. Like we need to change that vision that you need to go back to work quickly. You need antibiotics to go back to work quickly. I think that's the two main points. Yeah, I, I, I can see how that also can be different depending on which country you are living, that it might be more okay to be at home longer just to take care of your sickness than coming back as soon as you can. Yeah, so very interesting and thank you so much for, for your time with us. I hope you are having a good meeting. Thank you very much. Hi, welcome back. We are at the last day here at ECMIT and uh, I'm going to interview now somebody that is working in a very exciting and needed part of uh, antibiotic resistance and antibiotic stewardship, which is the correct identification of the infections that are happening. And he is coming from all the way the, of the United States of America. You're coming from USA, from Maryland. And he is working, yeah, as I said, in rapid identification um, and antimicrobial susceptibility testing. So could you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us what you're working with? Sure, my name is Sahil Sheth and I'm currently a assistant professor of pharmacy at uh, one of the uh, pharmacy schools at University of Maryland. And I'm also a uh, pharmacist in the intensive care unit at a hospital. And um, we recently did a study looking at um, rapid identification of organisms and seeing how that can impact our patients, whether it be how long they're in the hospital or um, how quickly we can de-escalate or at least come to the important antibiotic, uh, which is the best for the patient as quickly as possible. Yeah, this, this concept of de-escalation is something that I myself have learned over this uh, Congress here. That is when you are giving something that is not perhaps 
dedicated enough for the infection that the patient has, but it's something that you just give to try to, and then the escalation will be to give something that is much more narrow spectrum, right? Exactly. So what, um, what ends up happening is when patients come in with bad infections, we don't necessarily know what organism is causing it. So we do have a clue. Uh, however, we'll use broad spectrum, so uh, big antibiotics up front to cover anything that we might think the patient might be growing. And then once we know what the bug is, we'll quote unquote de-escalate, so come down to the right antimicrobial. So we know that not only do um, toxicities and bad effects of these antibiotics uh, decrease, but we also see that the, we can potentially get patients out of the hospital much quicker. So how are you looking into this and what are your main results? Yeah, so, uh, so we did a one-year study looking at phenotypic identification of organisms versus um, our previous standard of care. So we saw that um, any patients who had a positive blood culture with an organism, we used this rapid identification system and saw what particular bug they were growing and we would know what it was within seven hours versus waiting for 24 to 48 hours. And then we used our clinical pharmacists, um, our antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist who looks at antibiotics on a daily basis, and me, um, who looked at uh, what antibiotics the patients were on before, and then after these results, how we can de-escalate to the right antibiotic for the patient. And then we saw what our overall results were. So how did we get to that target antibiotic? How long did it take? How long did the patient stay in the hospital? How many overall days of broad antibiotics that we use. So we looked at all of those factors and saw uh, potentially pretty positive results with this current technology. So identifying the bug as quick as possible is essential to, to so no waste antibiotics that, we, that would be not so good for the patient, but also antibiotics that we might want to leave for last resource, right, when other things are not working because the bugs are resistant to them. Absolutely. So not only is de-escalation important and exactly what you talked about after uh, decreasing resistance and making sure that adverse effects are lower in patients with multiple antibiotics, which are too broad, but it also works the other way. So there are patients that could potentially be having a bug that isn't covered by the initial antibiotics and you need to escalate therapy. Um, so actually use something even broader because every time you're not covering the potential organism with the right antibiotic, the chances of patients dying are much, much higher, about 7% every hour in patients that are coming in with bad infections and sepsis. So here definitely the time matters. Um, I'm a bit curious as to why, why is this technology so much quicker than the traditional methods? So they're using... Um, they're using gel hybridization, electrofiltration, as well as observation of bacterial growth. So they're looking at bacteria not just as how they grow into culture, but they're also phenotypically looking at what the bacteria could possibly uh, is possible to be. Okay, so it's both, what, and also the resistant pattern. What yeah, is the identification so of species and the resistance? Exactly. So what identification phenotypically? So looking at what the bug looks like, and then finally the susceptibility. So seeing which antibiotics will work on which, um, which organisms. And the impacts of your study is to actually give more data so more hospitals can implement this type of technology? Definitely. So initially our plan was to at least see that this technology is beneficial to use in our hospital. So we did see patients leaving the hospital two days early, uh, quicker and that ends up being a savings of a close to two hundred dollars to $500,000 a year for the hospital system, which is massive. Um, in addition, we also saw that patients 
not only left earlier, but they also were on these targeted antibiotics much quicker. And then lastly, maybe even depending on a bigger trial done at multiple other centers, you might end up seeing an impact on overall mortality. So patients that are surviving more uh, with the system. Cool. This is very, very interesting stuff. I went to the Integrated Symposium by, by the company that does this technology. I was super interested to see how important getting there quickly is and, and, and the outcomes of it. We thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. And I hope you had a really good meeting, meeting a lot of people and having really good discussions about your work. My pleasure. You as well. And thank you so much. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.